The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Welcome. And to Story City Church family uh, who's here in LA navigating this season with us, love you. Let's go to the Lord together. Um, Before we get to our text, I just want to say... It's been another discouraging week here in Los Angeles for a lot of us, I think. You know, more news coming down. uh, Feels like we take one step forward, two steps back sometimes. I think some of us may be weary, maybe worried, maybe tired, maybe wondering where this is all heading and when it will end. And so the first thing I want to do this morning uh, is a simple thing, but I just want to say to us together on the authority of God's Word that He is faithful that he's faithful in this moment, that he is with you in this moment, that he is seeing us through this moment. Uh, And I hope that doesn't fall as a spiritual platitude this morning that doesn't have any meaning. God's faithfulness is our life. Uh, It's always been our life. It was our life before and our hope before this season hit. It's our hope in this season. His faithfulness will be our hope after this season. It's where we take our stand. This time and this season And this moment will pass, it will become a part of history books, but God's word and his character and his faithfulness to us through Christ endure forever. Psalm 40, or Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's take comfort, let's take peace, let's take refuge in that truth, not as a platitude, but as a strong tower the reason we do what we're doing this morning, to run to Christ. So with that said, let me run, uh, read this text for us. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 12, verse 31 through 13, 8 this morning. If you have your Bibles, make sure those are out, and let's read this together. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your love for us demonstrated and proven at the cross where Christ gave his life for us to reconcile us and give us the only security that truly matters in insecure moments, the security of knowing that our eternity is squared away and settled through his sacrifice. So Father, show us what love means this morning and primarily show us how you've loved us that we may learn to love in response to your initiating love. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So just this week, 
uh, we've recently purchased some bikes in my household, and uh, I've been taking my daughters out for bike rides to get them out of the house. And I was in the garage getting my daughters ready to go out on a bike ride. Graceland, she's six. She's learned to ride her bike. Adeline, I have a little trailer. I pull her in, and as I'm getting the bikes ready, uh, all of a sudden I look up and see that there's a puddle of water out in front of my garage. Uh, I'm not sure where it came from at that moment, but I do see immediately that my daughters have started jumping and splashing and doing what any six and three-year-old would do in that puddle, splashing, getting their clothes dirty, wet, and muddy. And in that moment, without really thinking knee-jerk reaction, I snapped at my kids. I said, girls, why would you do that? Why would you get your clothes muddy? You should know better. With an angry tone, I, I snapped, and then I realized that that puddle was formed because about 10 feet away, my neighbor was washing his car. And I had just won the Dad of the Year award in his eyes by snapping at my kids in that tone. And I wondered to myself, and I thought to myself in that moment, Lord, I know and want to be the kind of dad that embraces mess, that encourages adventure, um, and just lets my kids be kids. I want to be loving and kind and life-speaking. These are the things I desire, but what comes out of me when the rubber hits the road so often is the opposite. Uh, why, God, is what I want to do and the ways I want to love my kids so far from the reality of what comes out of me in hard moments. Why do I have such a short fuse with my kids, which then plunged me as, as a melancholy introvert into this deep line of thinking of, what's really our human issue? What's wrong with the world? What really ails us? What's my problem? What's our world's problem? And that's kind of the question I want to start us on this morning is, what's wrong with our world? We've all got our opinions on what's wrong with the world. We've got our thoughts on what's wrong with the world. But what is really wrong with us? Why are we so far from being able to live out what we desire to live out? The professor of philosophy, a professor of philosophy at San Francisco State University named Jacob Needleman years ago wrote a book called Why Can't We Be Good? It was a good book. In it, he asked this question. Why do we repeatedly violate our most deeply held values and beliefs? Uh, essentially, what Needleman says in this book is that um, psychologists and social theorists are unfolding for us how we should be good and what we should do and, and, what's, and, uh, and unfolding for us what we need to do to live good lives. Politicians are making speeches and legislating how we should live. But Needleman says that our real ultimate problem isn't a lack of knowledge about how we should live. We all really know deep down how we should live. He says our problem is our inability to actually live the way we know we should live. In a, in a talk he gave at Google on this book, Needleman said this, every day we wake up in the presence of a great chasm. On one side of the chasm are the ways we all know deep down that we are supposed to live, to care for others, to seek to do justice, to live with integrity to not always put our egos first, and so on and so forth. On the other side of this chasm, however, is our actual behavior and how it manifests. He says, I can have all the ethical vision and certainty I want, but let somebody take my parking place, or let me find out someone's been gossiping about me and I'm ready to kill. I behave in ways that are deeply wrong, and I see at this point that I can't help it. What is that? How do I make a bridge over this chasm between what I know to be right and wrong and how I actually behave towards other people? 
This author was not a Christian, but he, in this quote and in his book, identified our great human problem as prescribed by the Bible. It's our inability to keep God's good law, which is summarized, this whole law is summarized and distilled by Jesus as an inability to love, a brokenness when it comes to love. Jesus did this when he was questioned and asked by a teacher in the New Testament to sum up all the law and say, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded with this in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's so simple, right? Just two things we need to do. We need to love the Lord our God with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our might. We need to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's so simple. So why can't we do it? Why can't we love God and people the way we know deep down we should? I read this first last week, Romans seven fifteen. The apostle Paul writes, I don't understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Can you resonate this morning? I can. Why? What in us is so broken? Well, the underwhelming at times, but simple biblical answer is sin. Sin. Our problem is sin. And if our problem is sin, the next obvious question that flows out of that for anyone thinking rationally is if sin is our great problem, what's so wrong with us, then how do we come to live an anti-sin life? How do we break free from the bondage and power of sin? To answer this question, we need to understand that sin is more than breaking rules biblically. Sin is more than just breaking rules. Sin is a heart issue. And therefore, to live the Christian life is more than just to keep rules. Here's why. You can live a very good life, a very religious life, many do, and still be caught deep in the grips of sin. How so? Well, you can be caught in the grips of the sin of self-righteousness, of self-centeredness, in which we use our goodness to control God, to put God in our debt, to be able to say to him deep in our souls that we may not even realize we're saying it, God, I've been good, and so you're in my power. You owe me a good life in response to my goodness because I've obeyed. If you want to meditate more on that truth, I'd recommend the parable of the two brothers in Luke 15, the two prodigal sons. So if it's true that we can do good things with sinful motives, then it leads me to say this, the life free from the ruining power of sin is more than just living a good religious moral life. It's living a love-filled life, a life led and lived and filled with divine love. Our text today, 1 Corinthians 13, is arguably the most well, the third most famous passage in all of Scripture, maybe behind the Lord's Prayer in Psalm 23. It's a sweet-sounding Scripture. You've heard it at weddings. You've almost possibly read it in a Hallmark card. But the reality and power and thrust of this passage is actually found in understanding its context. Why the Apostle Paul is saying this. Who he's saying it to. When he's saying it. What he's trying to form in them and uproot from their lives by saying it. And really, when we understand this passage in its context, we're going to understand that it reads less like a Hallmark card and more like a jarring rebuke. More like, if you will, a truth bomb going off in this Corinthian church. It's important to understand that Paul is writing to a young church 
that was apparently, in this context, we see exercising and exemplifying the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, but was lacking greatly in the fruit of the Spirit, love, which would give the gifts the ability to bear true spiritual fruit. 1 Corinthians 13 quickly is sandwiched between chapter 12, where Paul lays out the basics of spiritual gifts, that is, what their source is, God and the church, how God uses them to build up and edify his church, and chapter 14, where Paul gives instruction on how gifts are to be exercised in the church, how they're to be used to God's glory. I want to say up front to be clear before you get too excited, my goal and direction this morning is not to try to unfold a nuanced theology of spiritual gifts. I'm sorry to disappoint, but what it is to do, I want to show us two simple things this morning, I hope, from God's word in this text. One, I want to show us why love is so supremely important. And after that, I want to show us how God can make us loving. So first, why love is so important in the church? among the people of God. Let's reread these first three verses. 1 Corinthians 12, 31 through 3, 3. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge... And if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Here Paul says this. The spiritual fruit of love is so important and indispensable in the Christian life and in the church that without it, all other spiritual gifts accomplish an amount to exactly zero, nothing. Paul in so many words is telling this church in Corinth and he's telling us this church in Corinth that is strong in gifts, but weak in love, that the fruit of love in the Christian's heart is not only more valuable, but also more miraculous than miracles. The fruit of love in our hearts is the greatest miracle that God could possibly work in our church right now and in this church then. But why is Paul saying this? What's what's his reasoning for saying this? Well, a little more context. Paul is writing to a young church. Like I said, they're in Corinth. This church was actually about five years old at the time of Paul's writing. That's exactly how old our church is. Uh, Corinth, where he was writing this, was a city that sat on a four-mile isthmus in the middle of Greece. Below Greece sat all the southern provinces, and above Greece sat all the northern provinces. It was sandwiched as an important piece of land right between them on a small outshoot. That's where Corinth sat. So locationally, Corinth, this city, at this time was the ideal place for commerce and making money. It was a buzzing metropolis. Anyone who wanted to go north to south or south to north to ship goods by land had to travel through Corinth. Every interstate ran through the city of Corinth. Not only that, but in order to ship goods by boat, you would either have to sail around hundreds of miles of land, or you could pull up into the dock at Corinth, offload your goods, strip them four miles across land, and put them on a different boat. So by sea or by land, Corinth was the hub for all industry. 
Additionally, in 146 BC, Corinth was destroyed by the Roman Empire. 146 years before the time of Christ. And from 146 BC to 44 BC, Corinth was leveled. It was destroyed. Nobody lived there. And in 44 BC, Julius Caesar turned it into a Roman colony. He established there a Roman colony. He, he was an entrepreneur. He saw potential. He saw something good. And in the next 200 years from that time to the time of its, from the time of its fall to Rome to where we are today when Paul writes to this church in, in Corinth, it had grown to be one of the biggest cities in the world. And because it rose quickly out of nothing, because it rose from rubble where no one had lived for 100 years, the city had no native population. It had no tradition. It was a highly diverse city. It was multi-ethnic. And the one common binding trait that joined everyone who lived in Corinth together, the reason they were there is they had moved there to make something of themselves. The people that had moved to Corinth had left home to make something of themselves, to find success. Corinthian people at this time were movers and shakers. They were visionaries. They were risk takers. They were intelligent. They were entrepreneurial. They were artistic. They were ambitious. They were naturally gifted. Corinth in the time of Paul was the most densely populated, competitive, success-driven city in the world. Sound a little bit like LA to you? It was also among the most sex-oriented, sex-oriented cities in the world. At the highest point of the city was the Acra Corinth, temple of the goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, passion, procreation, Aphrodite. Every night in the city of Corinth, historians tell us that a thousand temple prostitutes would come down into the city. This was a sex-obsessed city. It had no rules. It was such a promiscuous city, in fact, that there's a verb that was coined that is still used today in some circles, to Corinthianize, to Corinthianize. And what to Corinthianize meant was to live in utter moral depravity, to give yourselves, yourself over to moral depravity. And it's in this city full of industrious, gifted Corinthianizers that the Lord uses Paul in Acts 18 to establish a church, a gospel outpost in enemy territory. Gifted, driven, intelligent Corinthianizers. A church takes root among them. It's the most gritty place possible. And yet revival comes through this church. It was a church birthed and made up of people with a past. Full of people with a past. But also at the same time, people who were gifted, ambitious. Who came to the city to make something of themselves. Acts 18 tells us that Paul stayed for, a year, stayed for a year and a half teaching this gritty, gifted young church. And most commentators will say that because of these factors, Corinth was the most unique church in Paul's ministry. How? Well, because of what we've just discussed, it was simultaneously one, an explosively powerful church full of extraordinarily gifted people. But at the same time, it was a deeply troubled church full of newly and recently converted would-be Corinthianizers. This church was messy. People were making messes in this church. As an aside, I just want to say this morning that any church that's effectively missional in a lost city is going to look messy. 
Why? Because there's always going to be spiritual infants in the house. And as a dad of two toddlers, once we're toddlers, three and six, not toddlers anymore, I can tell you that kids make messes. They're messy. Any church that is effectively reaching a lost world is going to have messes made in it. We should show grace towards that. We should walk hand in hand with these people. We don't scream at a kid when they spill their milk. We show them a better way. But this church was driven and eager, earnest for the gifts of the Spirit, apparently practicing them, but simultaneously deeply flawed and lacking greatly, though they had the power of the Spirit, in the fruit of the Spirit, namely love. And so it's to these people with this context that Paul drops this truth bomb. He says, you've got great works. You're exercising the works of the Spirit wonderfully, but they amount to nothing because there's no love in them. You, spiritually speaking, are nothing without love, church, nothing. Why did Paul write 1 Corinthians 13? To tell the church this, you can be highly religious, you can even be gifted and not be a Christian at all, a spiritual nothing, unless you have love. Do you see why love is so important? You can have the greatest theology in the world, think with amazing clarity about God and not be a Christian if you don't have love. You can have wisdom and knowledge and discernment beyond compare and not be a Christian if you don't have love. You can be eloquent in ways that will fill arenas and not be a Christian if you don't have love. As Paul says it, you can possess all these things and be a spiritual nothing. No illumination in your heart, no saving grace, no fruit of the Spirit. Why? No love. Tim Keller, uh, talking about this passage, says it this way. He, He gives an illustration. He says, imagine you're driving up a mountain in the summer. And it's hot outside and you're driving your car. And so you want to make sure your car doesn't overseat. So you're watching the temperature gauge closely on your car. And it looks to be squared away in the green white where it should be. So you bump the AC to stay cool and you head up the hill. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, smoke starts billowing out your engine and your engine completely explodes. And Keller says, what happened? Why did that happen? He says, well, that was the gas meter you were looking at. The thermostat for your engine was over there. The point Keller's trying to draw out here is that we can't gauge our faith by the wrong meters. We can't gauge our intimacy with Christ by any false meter, be it giftedness, be it knowledge of the scriptures, any good thing if it is separated from love. Love is important because it is the accurate gauge of the Christian life. Love alone takes spiritual nothings and makes them sons and daughters of God. So that's why love is so important, but there's not a lot of hope if we end there. The second question I want to answer this morning is how God makes us loving, how we are made into love. To say that love is the most excellent way is to say that God's way is love. Love is God's way. It's God's way with us. The Christian faith If you've spent any time at church, I hope you have heard this truth, that the Christian faith is not founded and built upon our ability to obey rules and keep them very well to earn our way into God's love or favor. It's built upon the free love of God given to unworthy people like you and me through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The call of 1 Corinthians 13 to be loving is a call first and foremost to receive love, to receive the love of God. The love of God, once received, begins to make us lovely. When we are loved, we become lovely. We become loving, and to become loving, we must know and sense that we are perfectly loved by God in the gospel. The, only the heart melted by the love of God can be so transformed as to be made loving. 1 John 4.19 says it simply. We love because God, or he, first loved us. We love in response to the initiating love of God. Before we, we can become repositories of divine love, we must be made recipients of the divine love of Christ. Before we are made ambassadors of God's love to the world, we must feel our sins so miraculously, so miraculously covered by God's love for us that we are compelled by his love to love. The great J.I. Packer passed away on Friday. He was a hero of the faith. He said this, in the New Testament, grace means God's love in action. I love that. What is grace? Grace is God's love in action. It's an action towards people who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Grace means God sending his only son to the cross to descend into hell so that we guilty ones might be reconciled to God and received into heaven. Grace is love in action. As we grapple with this question of how do we become loving, let's resist the temptation this morning, church, to hear this sermon on the importance of love and go out clutching at our bootstraps, trying very hard to make ourselves loving and be loving. It's a fool's errand. If we are going to try very hard at anything, let's try very hard this morning to fixate our hearts on the reality that God loves and loved us so perfectly that he gave Jesus to save us. And let's trust together that that love received will form within us through the spirit, love given. I wanna remind us of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, one. This is two chapters after our text today. Paul writes this to the same church. Brothers and sisters, I wanna remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. Some verses on the gospel, church, simple as they are, famous verses. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. First John 4, 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's exactly what Christ has done for us, church. And 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one, Jesus died for all and therefore all died. Church, in this season, right now, you and I, 
We are feeling acutely our lack of control over our circumstances. We are feeling acutely our insecurity to know what tomorrow will bring, to be able to plan our course with ever-changing information coming our way. Church, we are feeling our insecurity right now. One of the beautiful things about putting the gospel in front of ourselves is that it reminds us that the only security that truly matters was settled at the cross where the love of God was displayed. Church, we have eternal security this morning that will allow us to face the storms of this season with backbones of iron if we keep it in view. Let's keep the gospel in view, our eternal security, Christ's love for us, that he would lay down his life for us who were his enemies. And that initiating love of God, that love that ran towards us at the cross and run towards us every day by the Spirit, will make us lovely in time if we fix our hearts on it. I want to I wind down by uh, talking about God's loving initiative as the source for the Christian life. The Christian life of love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes that love is kind. He says love is kind. And in the gospel church, God has been kind to us. He ran with joy and mercy and grace towards us who wounded him and opposed him by our sin and brought about his very death. But he used his death, by his death, in love, he made us who were his enemies, his children, his family, children of God. He gave us a seat at his table, a place with our name in it. A place to belong. Church, this is the doctrine of adoption, the initiating love of God. In his kindness, God welcomes spiritual orphans like you and me and makes us his children, welcomes us home, though we didn't deserve it. Church, that kind of love will make us lovely. Paul writes that love is not self-seeking. He says that it keeps no record of wrongs. Church, in the gospel, through Christ, God has not been self-seeking. Rather, the very nature of the love God shows us is a self-sacrificial love. It's a sacrificing love. God sacrificed for us. He did not seek himself to the point of his own death on a cross, that he might heal, that he might restore, that he might redeem us who were his enemies to eternal life. Secure in his work. Church, this is the doctrine of justification. God not keeping a record of our wrongs, putting our sin as far as east is from the west, throwing it to the bottom of the sea, never to be seen again, covered in the finished work of Christ. In justification, God covers us in Christ's work. By faith, through grace, he makes an eternal declaration over you and me that we are righteous in his sight through the imputed, given righteousness of Christ. Church, God is not self-seeking, and God is love. Paul says that love is patient, that it always perseveres. And in the gospel, God demonstrated and demonstrates his patience with us daily. He journeys with us through this life as his blood-bought children. 
He journeys with us through our ups and downs, through our highs and lows, through our strugglings and failings, through the sin that is habitual in our lives that we grieve but cannot seem to break free from. God journeys with us patiently. He stays by our side. He does not move. He forms in us over time, one microchip at a time, the image of Christ. Paul writes that love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. In the gospel, God by his spirit delights to patiently lead us away from evil and teach us to rejoice with the truth by teaching us to love his word, even when it contradicts our thinking, teaching us to give love the higher ground, give his word the higher ground, even when it stings, believing and trusting that it's his truth that will set us free. Church, this is the doctrine of sanctification, God's journey with us through this life, patiently persevering by his spirit to make us more like Jesus. Paul writes that love never fails in verse eight. Church, in the gospel, God did not, does not, and will not fail us by his mighty love. He didn't fail in Gethsemane, the garden where he was tested and tempted, where he sweat blood. He was in such emotional agony, where he stared into the encroaching tar black suffering that was coming and awaiting him at the cross, where he would be separated from the father with whom he had had eternal joyful fellowship where he would have nails driven through his hands, where he would suffer agonizing physical pain to earn our forgiveness. He did not fail on the cross as he suffered. In the greatest act of love ever, though he could have snapped his fingers and ended the lives of everyone around him, he chose in mercy because his prize on the other side was us to stay on that cross to hang on that cross until he breathed his final breath and said, it's finished, it's done. The way is open between God and man through my blood. I have become the bridge to span the chasm between their inability to be good and their knowledge of what is good. I've been good on their behalf. I've laid my cross down over the chasm that can come and go freely at the cost of my life. They don't have to try to solve an unsolvable riddle of how to free themselves from their own sin. They simply have to look to my sacrifice in their place and my love that cannot be removed. Church, our story ends in glory. I don't know how this season that we're in will end. I don't know when it will end. I don't know what events will unfold, but I know this. My end is in glory with Jesus Christ. That's where my story ends. And if you have responded to Christ by faith this morning. That is where your story ends as well. It ends at a banqueting table loaded with choice meats, fine wines, Christ presiding over the feast, the festival celebration ensuing Christ as the master of ceremonies. And in that moment, that real moment, as real as the moment you occupy right now on your back patio or in your living room or in your bedroom, as real as the moment I occupy right now at our Granada Hills campus, we will raise our glasses together, seated at his banqueting table, adopted as his children, and we will toast to the love of Christ that never failed us. 
to the God who adopted us, who were orphans into his family, who justified us by the cost of his own life, who sanctified us through patiently journeying with us through life, and who has at long last ended our suffering, ended our sin, and glorified us, resurrected us, given new bodies, free from pain, free from sin, free from death. Death all of a sudden, pain all of a sudden, sin all of a sudden, suffering all of a sudden becomes the thing that is in its grave as we stand resurrected from our own graves by the love of God. And we rejoice. Church, this is the doctrine of glorification. Glorification. You and me, free from sin, free from sickness and disease, and fear and death and decay. Free to perfectly and eternally love and enjoy God. I'm not making this up, church. Isaiah 25, 6 prophesies. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all the peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Because of love, because of the initiating love of God for you and for me. Church, this is our eternity. It is settled. It is secure. It's our reality, our end. Nothing in all creation can take it from us. Church, see this love this morning. Look at it closely. This incredible love. Give yourself to it gladly, repetitively. Determination in your heart to taste and see that God is good. Pursue him by his word. Not out of duty and fear or a countenance that fears punishment. Out of joy and love for what he's already given to us in Christ. Because he's good. Because he's better than anything else. Because there's no better way to spend your hours than pursuing him. Obeying him. Loving him. fruit of love grows in no other soil than gratitude for the love of God, freely given in Christ. Church, in this season, this long trying season, may we not forget the gospel of the love of our God, his love for us through his son, Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement for our sins, eternity and glory because of it, even in this season. I'll close by reading uh, the end of a poem by George Herbert called The Agony. I've changed a few words because the poem was written in Old English and I want us to be able to understand it. It says this, who knows not love? Let him survey and taste that juice which on the cross a spear did make to flow again. 
let him taste that. Then let him say, if ever he did taste the like. Love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. Church, love was costly to God. He felt it as blood. It was the cost of his life. But we get to experience love as wine, as rich, freeing, sweet, savory freedom through Christ. Praise God for our Savior this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, for your love. Thank you that atonement has come at the cost of your life, that freedom has come through your death, that hope has come through your resurrection, that glory awaits us, that you are coming again to put an end to the madness that sin has wrecked planet Earth with. We look to you and no other thing. We look to you and no other thing. Jesus, we look to you and no other thing. Jesus, we look to you and no other thing. Fill us now with divine love in response to your initiating love. Make us a loving and lovely group of believers here at Story City Church because we see you, the greatest love. In Jesus' name, amen.